Hi, I'm Brett Johnson, former United States Most Wanted cyber criminal, now good guy, and host of The Brett Johnson Show. Today's episode is episode number 66, a layered approach to security. When we come back. We know that we always open up with viewer comments, viewer mail questions, all that good stuff. So let's go ahead and get started with that right out of the gate. Over on LinkedIn, Frank, remember, I don't give last names unless they tell me I can. Frank messaged me last night and he says, hey, let's get up here. I got this email this morning from someone and was interested in what your take on sharing intel is on public forums. And he copies me, he copies the email and he sends it to me. He's like, uh, this person, I'm going to cut down, uh, that way no one knows who I'm talking about. But uh, the question the person asked was, do you or the fraud hunters out there have any concerns over publishing fraudster tactics in a public forum? My concern is that the bad actors are following your articles too and can easily change tactics once they know people are on to them. I have a feeling that even if you put the articles behind a login, that would not deter them from following along. Maybe I'm overthinking this. For clarity, this is not a judgment. I'm curious of your thoughts on this. So Frank was like, hey, I'm curious of your thoughts on this. You know, my thoughts on this, I'll tell you what my thoughts are. Typically, <laughs> typically criminals don't go to LinkedIn or to good guy blogs to figure out how to break the law. We do our research. We absolutely do that. But, you know, if we're trying to find a, a technique or a target or what the newest tools are to circumvent some sort of security, we go to dread. We go maybe to Telegram, although I, Telegram is not trustworthy at all. But we go to criminal communities and our criminal peers and ask these questions. We don't go to LinkedIn. You know, the only people who don't know how these crimes are committed are the good guys. That's the only people. So this person that was asking, are you, aren't you scared that they're going to, to read what you're putting out there about how these crimes are being committed? Aren't you worried about that? Well, I'll tell you the truth. They already know how these crimes are committed. The people who don't know that are the good guys. How do you expect? How do you how do you expect to defend against these types of attacks if you don't even know? how they're committed. And I'm going to be honest with you. There are very few people on cybersecurity and that, that are out there combating online fraud and online crime that really understand the dynamics of the way that those crimes are being committed. Very, very few people. Matter of fact, I can probably count them on one hand. All right. Myself being one of those on the one hand. There are very few people that know that. So it's important to talk about that, to get that out, to educate people in the cybersecurity and anti-fraud industry on how these crimes are specifically done. The reason that I do that, now I started out, I've I'm, I'm been on the good guy side for, I don't know, six or seven years. And I started on LinkedIn by doing walkthroughs of how like refund fraud was, was being committed. And I got static because back then I was, you know, I was brand new out of the gate. 
No one trusted me. They were like, he's a criminal. He's a criminal. Well, I'm, yeah, okay. But I was still trying to turn my life around. But no one trusted me. And I got uh, a lot of people reached out to me. You're training people. You're teaching them how to commit this fraud. And my answer was the same back then. No, I'm illustrating how this fraud is committed because the bad guys already know you don't. I think that's important. I think it's very important. Um, you know, anyone that complains about that, I think you really need to check yourself. I truly do. Um, you know, I, I see a lot of people that think they know how the attackers operate, that think they know how these crimes are being committed, but there's a huge disconnect in the good guys between the bad guys. And that disconnect needs to be bridged. It needs to be, a, it, it, we need to understand the thought process, who the attackers are, how they attack, how they choose targets, what motivates them. Once you do that, you can design security around who the attackers are, what they're looking for, and what's, what the motivation is. You understand the persistence of the attack and then can design security to mitigate those types of attacks. If you don't know who your attackers are or what they're doing to get into your system or to victimize you, how would you ever hope to stop them? So anyone out there that has problems with that, I would say you're in the wrong damn industry. That's what I would say. I mean, it got to be honest with you, I'm kind of tired of pulling punches with people who just don't get it. So um, if you have an issue with this, with someone walking through how synthetic fraud or refunding fraud or account takeovers or anything else happens online, I would say that you're in the wrong industry. Maybe you should, uh, you know, Bucky's, yeah, Bucky's pays, I don't know, they pay $30, $40 an hour. A manager over there is making over $100,000 a year. That might be the career for you. That way you don't have to worry about things. And it's not a bad job. Just saying, just throwing that out there. Let's move along. All right, so one of the things that, um, let's see what we got here. All right, on a more serious note, I got this from uh, on my Twitter feed yesterday. And uh, the guy says, hey, Brett, my name is John. I really appreciate the follow back. I just finished listening to both of the episodes you did with Jack on Darknet Diaries. And hearing you talk about your mental health and your struggle to find yourself has really resonated with me. I'm someone that struggles really bad with depression and anxiety. I don't even know why I'm writing this direct message. I guess it's me kind of reaching out. I don't really have many friends or people around me that understand. I've followed your podcast and, and I'm about to start listening to the episodes from the beginning. I'm just struggling to find my place in life at the moment. Sorry again, this DM is a bit all over the place. I didn't expect you to follow back straight away. I appreciate it, man. So anyone who follows me, I typically, if I, if, Unless that follow button is, I've just missed it somehow, I follow you back immediately at that point. And I, I try to respond to anyone who, who messages me. Um, dude, I appreciate you reaching out. And I appreciate you listening to Darknet Diaries and subscribing to my podcast and, and things like that. If you didn't know, the uh, the Brett Johnson Show, it's really a support group that's kind of wrapped in a cybersecurity veneer. All right. Um, as long as people are trying to better themselves, 
I, um, I'll, I'll absolutely talk to you and, and try to help you. And that, I think that that helps me along the path as well. Um, you know, I've talked to a guy the other day, um, episode 63, I left a message. It was just one thing I responded to. And during the viewer comments, this guy named Ryan, who was breaking the law and I, I kind of checked him because he had continued to break the law and he was using a lot of excuses to continue that behavior. Um, so I, I, I want to help, but I think that help comes with always being truthful. Um, I, I, your depression and things like that. I don't know how bad it is. I would ask if you've received any type of counseling or anything else like that. There's no shame in seeing a counselor. I've done that. It, it helps. It absolutely helps. So it, if you, uh, you could see a counselor and do that. Maybe uh, find some support groups as well. Um, you said you didn't have many friends or anything else like that. You know, get out and start talking to people online. Hey, I'll be your, I'll be your buddy. All right. But uh, start talking to people and trying to develop those types of relationships. Uh, one of the things that I found when I turned my life around is um, I surrounded myself. I didn't have a safety net or a support group. I mean, I had my wife which she is, absolutely she is. I had my wife and I had my two stepsons and had my sister and that, yeah, that's a support and safety group, but I needed something more than that as well. So I started to surround myself on LinkedIn with every law enforcement officer and cybersecurity professional that I could find. And uh, the hope being, because I had chosen to turn my life around, the hope was, is that, okay, they can, they'll, they know who the hell I am and they'll keep an eye on me. If I ever step out of line, they're going to call me on that. So it was this kind of checks and balances that I implemented. And over time, it became a real support group. And over time, I found friends there as well. Uh, it's very hard for me to uh, to get friends uh, because of my upbringing, that um, degree of distrust and not um, not opening up to people. So um, my shows, my either on you know video or when I'm on stage or something like that, is all about me sharing this, and um, that's that's the avenue that I've found where I can open up. And so I would uh, I would I would urge you to um, if you're going through depression, I would urge you to seek out some counseling, talk to some people, build you that type of safety and support net as well. You know, it doesn't have to be a real one to begin with because it will become a real one over time. Okay. Do that. And I think you're going to be all right. And Hey man, I'm here. So, uh, you know, send me a message. We'll talk. We'll chat. You may have to chase me down sometimes because I, I stay a little busy every now and then, but, um, I, I wish the best for you. And I, I, I'm confident that you're going to be okay. All right. So let's, uh, let's move right along on that. So we got some questions. This is from, um, the YouTube comments. This guy's name is Nathan. He says, hey, Brett, I was wondering if you were planning on making a video about the Tor network constantly being DDoSed and state actors trying to control 51% of exit nodes. Also talk about I2P. Huge fan of your channel. Have been following since Lex Friedman. Okay, so... I talk about this in conferences. I think I've even talked about it on my show as well. You have the traditional dark web, and the traditional dark web is what you can access it using Tor, the Onion Router. The Onion Router was developed by the United States Navy 
as a method to allow intelligence operatives to communicate with each other without being identified. It then went open source with the idea that whistleblowers could use it or that people from other countries behind some country's firewall, think China, think North Korea, Cuba, Iran, places like that, that citizens there could bypass that country's firewall and access the real internet, get messages out, get real news coming in, things like that. Of course, the U.S. Navy and those open source people that, you know, the Tor Project, they didn't take into consideration that the first adoptees of tech, when that tech can be used to help someone remain anonymous or to launder money, the first adoptees are criminals. So, of course, criminals flock into that environment, and that's where the term dark web comes into being because of the criminal activity that takes place there. So here's the deal, though. There's a lot of friction on that traditional dark web, that thing that you have to use the Tor browser to access. There's no search engine. You have to know exactly where you're going to go. You have to have the damn thing configured properly, or you're going to be identified by law enforcement. And then the other issue is what this gentleman alludes to here. There is a huge DDoS attack that's been going on for years. Anyone that opens up a brand new dark web forum, or criminal marketplace or something like that, they start getting DDoSed out the ass, a dedicated denial sir, uh, uh, denial attack. Now, understand that these are criminals that are attacking other criminals. So if I were to open up a criminal marketplace today, I would, within days, start seeing a DDoS attack on that marketplace so that it could not be accessed by anyone and I would not be making money. I would then get a message and that message would say, hey, if you want to do business, you're going to have to pay me X amount of dollars or I'll make sure I continue to attack you and you'll never have any business. No one will ever be able to visit your site. So do you want to pay it or not? And because of that, that's why when you go to Dread and you go to these other marketplaces, that's why you have these horrible captcha type systems. They're there to defeat any type of bots that are trying to ping that service with a DDoS, okay, is why that's there. And a CAPTCHA is very good about mitigating a botnet type of attack because that's typically what a DDoS attack is, okay? So they're very good about that. And the CAPTCHAs are so complicated. Anyone who's ever been to Dread or some of these other channels will, will, will understand that, hey, sometimes it takes 20 minutes to get through these freaking things. They're there, and they're so complicated to take care of the more sophisticated types of bots that are coming into that network to slow things down so that the, the marketplaces and the forums remain online, okay? So that's that's this DDoS attack, and it's been going on for years. Um, there, was a, there was a moment in time that people thought that it was, you know, state actors. It was the United States. It was one of these countries that was launching DDoS attacks against these criminal environments. Which, hey, it sounds good. That's not really the case. It's criminals that are doing this to other criminals. Now, that takes care of that. Now, let, actually, let me follow up with one more thing on that. Understand, too, that because of this, because of that friction, and this is what you call this, the user experience on the traditional dark web, that friction. I mean, what slows you down? Well, it's the captchas, it's the DDoS, it's all these phishing sites that are popping up because... You, you've got criminals, again, that are attacking other criminals. So they build phishing sites that look like, you know, 
whatever the newest marketplace is that's out there in order to get your credentials so they can log into the actual um, real marketplace, steal all the Bitcoin that's there under your name. Okay. And because of that, you've got different approaches to security on the dark web to try to mitigate those things. You've got the CAPTCHA system. You've got the, uh, the PGP key. You've got it being required on a lot of marketplaces where you have to use Monero, not Bitcoin anymore, because Bitcoin can be tracked. So you've got all these different types of a, a layered approach to security that helps to mitigate a large number of the attacks that are going on over there. You see, criminals believe in a layered approach to security just as much as the good guys need to. So that's the topic of today's show, remember? So that's that's one of the things there. Now, the uh, you also asked about, let's see, what, what was the other part of that? State actors trying to control 51% of the exit nodes. When you sign on to Tor, you go through nodes, entry and exit, all right? Your ISP absolutely knows that you are using Tor. They can see it. Absolutely, they can see that. Now, they don't know what you're doing on Tor, all right? But if a an entity controls enough of those nodes, entry and exit, at that point, you can start to identify who these users are, and you can start to match information up for whatever's going on on marketplaces and things like that to the individual that's logging in, logging off, things like that. So you think about it. Someone's on Dread. They log in at 12.01. Now, there's a shitload of people that are using the dark web these days. But if you know they're logging in to Dread at 12.01, you can start looking at your entry nodes at that point in time and start to see, okay, what's going on with these other users that are coming in at this point in time? Same thing when they log out, you can start to see that. And then you can start to correlate users to a specific action that's going on on the dark web. You can start to get the IP numbers. You can start to do this. You can start to... I've talked before about how, especially English-speaking criminals, share way too much information. They share the states that they're in or the stores they're victimizing, things like that. They, they take snapshots of receipts, stolen goods, things like that as well. So if you can, if you can start to determine the area that that criminal is in, then you start to compare IP addresses at the same time that you're trying to see in logins and logouts of websites. So that's a big issue. So it's very important for law enforcement and, and government agencies to try to control those nodes because at that point, the Tor browser is no longer anonymous. If you control 51%, you, ha you have the run of things all of a sudden, okay? And I would not be surprised if there aren't entities already that control 51%. Just saying, just throw that out there. That's one of the reasons that people continue to migrate over to Telegram, that lack of friction that's on Telegram right now. All right, so moving right along, uh, here is another gentleman. I love animals. He says, please make an educational video on a legit site selling plastic dumps and pens. So many scams out there. So dumps and pin, what he's looking for, for those who may not know, a dump, a credit card dump. On the back of your debit or credit card, that magnetic stripe, there are three data tracks on that magnetic stripe. The first track is the customer's name. Second track is the card number forward slash 16-digit algorithm out beside of that. The third data track is called indiscriminate data. No one buys or no one uses it, all right? 
What's bought and sold on criminal marketplaces is the second data track, the dump. All right. That when I was a criminal, typically sold a credit card dump would sell for around $30. Okay. Today, that same dump sells for around $30. Now, what he's talking about is he's talking about a dump that comes with the pin. That way you can take it to an ATM and you can start to pull out cash. Now, here's the thing. Why would a criminal sell a dump and pin, and pin, which is free money? The only thing they have to do is encode it on the back of a card, take it to an ATM because they've got the pin, take it to an ATM, pull cash out. Why would they sell that to you for $30 or $100 or a couple of hundred dollars when they can pull that money out themselves unless they are in a geographic area where they cannot do that? And then what do they do? Well, at that point, they round up some money mules like we did back on Shadow Crew with the CVV1 hack. There is no such thing as free money. There's not. This, the, the message that you sent me, I love animals. Can you talk about legit sites that issue that talk about this? Now, where he's getting this, on Telegram, there are a lot of criminals on there that are advertising dump and pin. Okay. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I'm saying you ain't going to find it on Telegram. You ain't going to find it on some traditional dark web marketplace. You're not going to find that because it's free money. Okay. In order for you to engage in that kind of stuff, you're going to have to be part of a network. You're going to have to be trusted and you're going to start your ass off as a money mule. They're going to send you some dumping, dumps and pins. You're not going to have to pay for them. They're going to front you some and they're going to test you. Are you going to give them the 60% that you've agreed upon, or are you going to just pocket all the money like an idiot and go for that instant gratification? That's what's, that's what's going to happen, okay? Understand that on Telegram, 70% plus of every single thing that's advertised there on criminal environments are scams. Over 70%. Shit like this is a scam. Nobody's got that on Telegram. So there's your, there's your video for the day. Nobody's got this shit. Criminals are not idiots. They don't give away free money. Why would I give you a dumping pin that's got a couple of grand on it and sell it to you for $100? I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to either withdraw the money myself or I'm going to find me a money mule that's going to withdraw it and it's going to, cut, going to send me 60% of the money back. That's what I'm going to do. And we're going to develop a relationship. And we're both going to make a lot of money at that point in time. It, it's disappointing. It's disappointing to me that, uh, you know, this buyer beware caveat emptor, that crim some criminals just don't understand that. You know, if it sounds too good to be true, it is. And that, to me, sounds way too good to be true. Okay, so just please bear that in mind. Now, moving right along, I wanted to show this because I think this is kind of nifty. The other day on um, Memorial Day, there was a lot of news about, let's share screen here. There was a lot of news, and this is from my LinkedIn. There was a lot of news about this right here. Uh, in Alabama, Birmingham, evidently someone hacked a road sign, and here's a snapshot of it. Someone hacked a road sign to say racist things. And the snapshot that I've taken here is, just says Patriot, Patriot Front U.S. 
So the news was really adamant about, oh, they've hacked into road signs to display racist messages. All these hackers are out there, blah, 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 blah. So it took me a day or two. I had read it and I was like, well, that's bullshit because I know what that means. I said, that's bullshit. So finally, I was like, you know what? I'll just go ahead and post it and we'll go from there. So I posted and I said, you know, hey, I've been reading a lot about the Alabama traffic sign getting quote unquote hacked to display racist messages. Let's not give a bunch of idiots too much credit, okay? It's not a hack. It's as easy as breaking a lock on a box under a traffic sign and typing in a new message, typically on a TRS-80. So those who may not know, TRS, Radio Shack, back in the day, and here's what those computers actually look like. So this computer here is a TRS-80 Model 100. Those road signs that you see beside the road that says, you know, road work ahead, things like that, they are programmed using this thing right here. And this thing right here is in a box underneath the road sign. It, they use this because the battery on it lasts forever. They're almost indestructible. You can get them wet. You can do all this other bullshit. Just dry them out. They're going to boot right back up again. They uh, they don't have much RAM on it. I mean, they're 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 fantastic machines for that specific job so what happens is if you want to the message to say something new you see the screen that's on this if you want if you want that road sign to say something new you just delete whatever's on there you type in a brand new message so how do you get in the box well typically there's i said it's locked typically it's not even locked you just open it up type a brand new message in there done if it does have a password the password is typically dots yeah, Department of Transportation Safety. Yeah, <laughs> password is typically dots. So that was what I posted. And I say this, and I wanted to show that because, again, we've got this thing of anything that happens online, any, any type of attack that's out there, people are adamant about saying it's a hack. Hackers did this. Hack it. You have to understand, hackers... That's not a hacker. That's just somebody that's fucking around. That's somebody that that opens up a box and types a brand new message in. At most cybercrime, there's no this this idea that cyber criminals are upper tier upper tier computer geniuses able to do anything. Typically not. You have those types of attackers that are out there. Their numbers extremely small. Think one to two percent of the overall attackers that are out there have that type of skill level. The other 98% are just people that are willing to do it, that are buying tutorials, that are buying off-the-shelf products and services, that are very good social engineers. They know what it takes to manipulate you into giving up information, access, data, and cash. So you guys have probably heard me say this before. I'm saying it again. So I just wanted to share that. Let me see if I've got any other messages before we get into the meat of today's show and i don't think i do so when we come back episode number 66 a layered approach to security okay so we are back to the brett johnson show number 66 a layered approach to security so here's the deal every single presentation that i give talks about the necessity of having that layered approach to security think of it like this 
an attacker. I don't care what type of attacker that it is. So understand online, there are seven different types of attackers that are out there. There are criminals like I used to be. There are nation states, terrorists, hacktivists. There are insiders. There are hackers for hire. And then there are script kitties. That's it. Just those seven. What are they motivated by? Come on, work with me. What are you motiva motivated by? Status, cash, ideology. That's it. That's the three motivations. I don't care what anyone else out there has to say about it. It boils down to those three motivations. Status, I'm doing it to impress my criminal peers. Because if I impress them, I get their respect, and that equates to more profit at the end of the day, and it gives a nice little ego boost. Cash, I'm looking to profit, and then finally, ideology. You have pissed me off. I am looking to get you specifically. If you understand who the attackers are and why they're attacking you, then you understand the persistence of the attack and can design security to mitigate those types of attacks. So understand that every single one of those seven different types of attackers, think of them as having a toolbox. And in their toolbox, they have a variety of tools with which to attack and victimize you. They have the high-level tools. You know, they've got Eternal Blue, Eternal Romance, side sequel server attacks. They've got Mimikatz. They've got all kinds of bullshit out there. Some, And it doesn't matter if you don't know what it is. Just understand they've got sophisticated shit to hit you. And then they've got the low-level social engineering tools that are out there that they'll use to hit you as well. They pick and choose which tool is best suited for the job at hand. And they they chain these tools together at the same time. As a defender, if you're looking to protect yourself or your organization, you need a toolbox as well. And in that toolbox, you need a variety of tools with which to protect yourself. So that's this layered approach to security. For, so for those people out there, if you run a business, you're going to be hit. Somebody from some security company is going to come to you and they're going to say, you know, we've got, here's the deal. We've got 8,500 plus security companies out there. A large number of those security companies are going to try to scare you to death. They're going to try to sell you product using FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. They're going to try to tell you, hey, it's hackers. It's hackers. You can't stop them. You're never going to catch them. They're ghosts in the systems. Why, look at these nice little snapshots we got of this guy in a hoodie in the shadows with a fog machine in the back. Maybe the Matrix background flowing too. They're going to try to convince you that that's what online attackers are. And that's not really the truth. They're going to also tell you, a lot of these security companies, not everyone, but a lot of them are going to tell you that, hey, the only chance you've got is with our product. And our product can solve every problem that you've got. You only need to sign on with us. You don't have to sign on with anybody else. That is what I like to call cybersecurity pillow talk. That's the same thing as meeting some dude or some girl at a bar and them telling you, I'll still respect you in the morning. Bullshit you. Well, after that dirty stuff you've done all night long, you're not going to respect anybody, anytime, anywhere, anymore. Just saying, just throwing that out there. 
it takes a layered approach. It takes a variety of tools to protect yourself from the different types of attacks that are out there. So we're going to, to today, on today's show, talk about what that layered approach looks like from a company point of view and also from an individual point of view. Because, hey, I know that it's not just security companies that listen to me. It's people. And people need to protect themselves as well. So without further ado, we're just going to dive right into that. And what I'm going to do is, you remember, I've got all these confidential documents that were handed over to me about these fintech companies. If you watched my previous show, you know, when the bad guys suck part two, I talked about that. I was handed over a, over 800 pages of confidential documents that talk about how some of these fintech companies helped to facilitate pandemic fraud. They actually helped the criminals out. If you've not watched that episode, please watch it. Please subscribe as well. I didn't say that earlier, but subscribe to the damn channel if you don't mind. And if, if you do mind, subscribe to the channel because, hey, I need it. Anyway, one of the documents, I'm going to share a screen here as we talk about this. One of the documents that was sent to me are uh, some messages from Toby Scamell. He's the CEO and founder of Wampley. Wampley was one of these fintech companies that the uh, House Committee is investigating for helping to facilitate pandemic fraud. And so some of the stuff he says is he says, hi, please see email and attachment. And he's this, this is internal stuff. Email and attachment for some of our technical suggestions. Separately, a couple of small tweaks that would have little to no impact on legitimate borrowers. So he's talking about the pandemic fraud, you know, EIDL, paycheck protection, stuff like that, the loans that they were processing. Understand that these companies these fintech companies, by processing some of these loans, they were profiting billions of dollars. The federal government was paying these companies just to process loans. One company makes over $2 billion. I think Wampley walked away with a billion dollars in profit. So the, the impetus, the motivation was there to help facilitate fraud. So Scamell is talking about some of this stuff here. And he says, you know, a few changes would have a huge impact on the fraud reduction in the PPP program and perhaps the SBA loan programs. The PPP forgiveness process affords you a unique opportunity to catch fraud even after the loans have been funded, which is an opportunity we shouldn't pass up. And so, again, this is one of these security techniques. The federal government for PPP and for SBA, they were forgiving the loans. They would give they would give someone a loan and they would say, hey, we're going to forgive it. So you don't have to pay us back. You're going to self-certify. We promise we're not going to audit you. Everything's going to be fine. So that was a huge motivator for criminals. It was almost a perfect crime because it was going to be forgiven. It was going to be forgotten. And what Scamell is saying here is like, hey, these criminals too are going to be applying for loan forgiveness. So this is another point where we can start to identify fraud, to identify the fraudsters because, hey, maybe coming in from a different IP, maybe coming in from the same IP over multiple accounts, things like that. So we can look for, or same device, or you know the, the, the way the, the application is filled out is identical to other things, dollar amounts, stuff like that. So we can look for this kind of stuff, okay? So that's what he's saying. And he comes down, he says, I hope, you're all well. I've attached specific recommendations that could be useful across COVID relief programs to reduce and detect fraud. Many of these can be implemented very easily. 
we're seeing an increase in the sophistication of attacks, and our team is also picking up significant dark web activities surrounding SBA, EIDL, PPP, including Wampley. So what happened was is the information of which borrowers you needed to go, or which loaners, loan companies you needed to go through was being posted on Telegram, on Dread, places like this. Hey, hit up Blue Acorn. They're easy. Hey, hit up Wampley. It's easy to get approved through them. They do it fast. So that was being shared on the dark web. And what Scamell is saying here is, hey, it's very easy to implement this security. It's very easy to do this. So here's some recommendations. So this is one of the takeaways to proper cybersecurity. Typically, people think that it's it's very difficult to implement proper security measures, and it's not. It's truly not. But you have to take a layered approach. So the next screen that I'm going to show you talks about or it shows this layered approach that he is recommending, okay? A variety of, pro of tools used to mitigate these attacks across a large surface, okay? Understanding that in each instance, the tool that he's recommending, the product, that, that service, that security technique that he's recommending, in each instance, it can be bypassed. But by chaining each one of these together, you create enough friction for criminals coming into the environment that the hope is, is that they find another place to commit fraud. All right. That's typically what you're looking for is you're looking to drive them away from your platform or you as a victim, as a potential victim, and they'll find somebody else easier to hit. Okay. So. Scrolling on down and you see confidential House Select Committee. So it turns out that these documents, the House and their infinite wisdom, they uploaded all of these documents when they weren't supposed to. And a select group of people captured them before the House took them back down again. So related to PPP, we have a list of compromised Social Security numbers and bank accounts that are definitively associated with fraud. We believe these should be blocked or at least flagged as high risk across all SBA programs. I offered, so Scamell actually says in this, and this is just kind of a, before we get into the layered approach, he says, I offered to share these with the OIG's office, but they suggested this was more of a policy issue. So here's the deal on this kind of stuff, all right? So what happens is, and let me stop sharing so you can see my pretty face for a second. So Here's the deal. If the OIG were to accept those documents, those social security numbers, at that point in time, they have to act on that. If they don't, that's negligence. That is common across many different verticals. If you take banking industry, for example, I had a, a friend that, uh, that would capture thousands of credit card numbers, and he gave me a specific example of Wells Fargo. He said, hey, I... I we found 30,000 credit card numbers that were being sold. I called up Wells Fargo and wanted to send these numbers over to their, to their system so that they could flag the numbers so that fraud wouldn't be committed. And Wells Fargo refused to take them. Now, why would Wells Fargo refuse to take those numbers? Because if they took those numbers, they would have to act on them. They would have to kill all 30,000 cards. And what does it cost to replace those cards? It costs $30 a piece to replace those cards. So Wells was of the opinion, and I'm taking a guess here, but Wells said to themselves, you know, we'll wait until fraud actually hits those cards. And at that point, we'll fix the problem then. So they did not take a 
proactive response to security. They took a reactive response, the same thing that the OIG is saying here about all the fraud that was hitting the SBA. Hey, we're not going to worry about that. No, 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 no. We'll cross that bridge when we get to it. The exact wrong thing to do because it helps fraud proliferate across these systems. It tells criminals, hey, they're getting away with it, so let's continue to profit. So I just wanted to share that before we get into this that I was talking about. So he says, Scamell says here, in recent days, we've seen a significant increase in fraudulent application. Oh, let me share a screen. Sorry about that. So what he says is, is he says, start back from the top. He says, in recent days, we've seen a significant increase in fraudulent applications that contain stolen identities. Yeah, no shit. Takeaway for the day. Financial online fraud always involves an element of identity theft. Always. Okay, so in recent days, we've seen a significant increase in fraudulent applications that contain stolen identities. Thousands of these applications have been approved by the SBA, indicating that the processes used by SBA to detect and prevent identity fraud are having minimal impact. Basically, the SBA sucks with security. We did a cursory analysis of SVOG, EIDL, and RRF programs and observed that they are likely to have the same vulnerabilities today as the PPP program. So what he's saying is, is hey, fraudsters hit one program, any other programs that are out there are going to have the exact same vulnerabilities because the government in their infinite wisdom, they don't know what the hell they're doing with security. And they're they like, hey, if it works one place, it works the same place. So we'll just do the same security every place. And nobody will ever look to, to the fraud of the United States government. Who would ever think about doing that? Yeah, who would ever think about doing that? Scamell goes on to say, here are some recommendations that may be applied to detect, prevent, and investigate fraud ag across government programs and by private participants. So the, the, the techniques that he talks about here are not just applicable to government programs. This is, a, this is a good breakdown of what a layered approach to security should look like, understanding that really every single one of these ideas that he puts out can be bypassed by a cyber criminal. Every single one of them can. But you need to understand that taking that layered approach, putting these layers in, layered one on top of the other, it creates so much friction that typically, because it's, you, you have to do all these things to get past all this bullshit, typically that attacker, that cyber criminal, is going to try to find an easier target to profit with. Okay, so the idea, again, is to drive them away. So we're going to walk through these, talk about this layered approach that, that Scamell, the founder and CEO of Wampley, recommended as proper security because it not just works in fintech or with government institutions, but it works with retailers, with uh, infrastructure companies. It works across the board with a lot of different types of verticals. A lot of the ideas here translate very well to those types of environments as well, financial institutions, things like that. He says, block all international IP addresses and all anonymous IPs. So think about that for a second. When the pandemic was going on, people from the EU, Ukraine, Russia, they were filing PPP claims or unemployment claims in the United States. So they were coming in using their IP numbers, their inter internet protocol addresses from 
the Ukraine from Russia. It was evident that the Russians were applying for this bullshit and they were being approved. What he said, and not only that, but anonymous IPs. So think Tor browser, think privacy browsers, things like that. So he says, hey, we've seen spikes in fraud from Ghana, Nigeria, and Pakistan in the last two weeks. The geographies of attacks changes, and therefore all international traffic should be blocked at the firewall. Most attackers mask their traffic with VPNs, proxies, or TOR. This is unlikely to have any impact on legitimate applicants. So he's saying, hey, it's just the criminals that are using these VPNs, proxies, and TOR. Most legitimate people, they don't worry about that. They simply use their cell phone or their laptop. They'll use whatever ISP they're on, and they'll apply. It's when you see these things that are being used to, cir to circumvent the IP, you know, proxy address. Who uses those criminals? TOR to apply. Who uses those criminals? VPNs, same thing. Now, VPNs is a little bit different, but still, VPNs are absolutely used by criminals. And yes, legitimate people use those as well, but he's saying block it all. Block it all at the firewall. This is unlikely to have any impact on legitimate applicants. IP traffic must be blocked at all levels, including by third-party solution providers. And he says DocuSign, LexisNexis, ID.me, payment processors, etc., IP traffic must be blocked at all levels because what typically happens is is I'll I'll buy I'll I'll gain access to your system by going through some sort of third party provider. Once I'm verified there, it allows me into your system. So think about that. ID.me was taking care of a lot of the unemployment um, verification that was going on. If I can get verified through ID.me at that point in time it allows me access to those government institutions. And the government's not really paying attention to who's coming in through those environments as long as they've been verified through that third-party service. So he's saying, no, you need to make sure that you're verifying there as well. Okay, so again, this is just one layer, making sure that the IP addresses coming into your system are the IP addresses that they're supposed to be. If you're running a McDonald's or a camera store in Newark, New Jersey, and you start seeing credit card orders coming in and the IP is coming from the Ukraine, that might be an issue. You might want to pay attention. That should be an indicator of fraud all of a sudden. So that's what he's saying. Block all voice over IP numbers, Google Voice. And he says, using Twilio or similar block voice over IP numbers from being used for sign-up verification or notifications. Associated accounts and applications should be viewed with very high risk. So any type of voice, voice, voice over IP number where someone doesn't have to use a physical phone, that should be raising fraud flags through the roof. Absolutely should be doing it. If it's not, that's an issue. So you need to pay attention to that. Database and KBA checks are widely exploited. Well, no shit they are. So for those who don't know, KBA is knowledge-based authentication. That's the security questions that are asked whenever you open up a new account, change information on existing accounts, things like that. That's your personal information that's out there. That's the stuff that's in a background check, your cross street, stuff, social security number, stuff like that. That's why financial fraud online always has an element of identity theft. I need to know who you are if I'm going to be able to steal your money or accounts. I have to be able to answer those questions. I have to be able to, to, to gain any uh, access that I need by answering those types of questions. And he's saying, Aaron, hey, you know, understand that, that 
because of the stolen identities, all these different companies that are out there are easily exploited. Okay. That doesn't mean that not to ask KBA questions. It's just another layer. But understand that it's easily bypassed. It's like, for example, international IP addresses and anonymous IPs. If I'm using a SOX5 proxy from a private provider, a lot of, and am I using it properly? A lot of the time, the, the victim, the company that I'm trying to victimize cannot tell that I'm using a proxy. So it's bypassed. Same thing with voice over IP numbers. Yeah, you can see it's a voice over IP. So that prompts me to go down and get a prepaid cell phone. So I can bypass that layer of security that you're blocking as well. Same thing for KBA. All right. I have to buy or get all of that identity information to answer those questions. So every single one of these layers can be bypassed. There are workarounds for every single thing that he's talking about. He says block temporary paper or foreign IDs. Use, fake, use of fake IDs are passing digital analysis, manual inspection, and barcode scanning. Other IDs should not be accepted. Expired IDs don't appear to be a strong indicator of fraud. So again, he says, hey, block the temporary, block the paper, block the foreign, because those are easily created. Okay, now, meaning if I'm going, if, if I'm in a system that's requiring a copy of a driver's license, you know, opening up a financial institution account, applying for a loan, something like that, if I'm in one of these systems, I'm going, again, to bypass that, I'm going to have to go out and get a good fake driver's license to do that. It's going to cost me as a criminal more money to do that. Again, a layer stacked onto these other layers. He says, use video selfies with strict liveness detection. Again, that's another layer. You can bypass it a lot of the times using mannequins or masks or a second cell phone or stuff like that, but it's still another layer. He says, block online banks at their routing number. Require funding into a bank account with a note with ACH. Require business bank accounts. Apply strict rules. Require minimum bank activity. Require a balance. Restrict bank account usage. Anonymous IDs and browser fingerprints. So all these things, he's got a list of different layers that can be used. Device counts. So he's saying, hey, look at the device that's coming in because you can see if it, what type of cell phone. If it's a laptop, you can see that specific device that's coming into that type of account. So you need to make sure that, hey, that this device is not also accessing other unrelated accounts in our system. That forces the attacker to make sure that every single time he accesses an account, it's with a unique device as well. So this layered approach to security, limit IP address distance from database address. So typically in a merchant type of environment, if I'm placing a credit card order, it's going to look to make sure that my IP address is in with a 25 mile or 50 mile radius of the home address. Okay, so that's what they're looking for. He's talking about all these different types of things. Use loan amount. Look at the amounts that are coming through. Restrict tax IDs. All told, he gives a very good approach to security coming up with every single one of these layers, all right? And understanding that, yes, every single one of these layers can be bypassed, can be worked around, but by having that layered approach, you're forcing that criminal to do all of these different things to get past your system, creating a lot of friction for the criminal, 
a lot of time, effort, and cash on the criminal's part to come in and defraud your environment is what he's talking about. That's what we mean by a layered approach to security. There is no silver bullet that's out there. There is no stop-all, be-all, end-all of fraud or cybercrime. Criminals can get past these types of systems. Typically, whatever the system is a criminal, there's some workaround for that. So you come around with a, a degree of layers in order to drive that price of crime up, price meaning either out-of-pocket expenses or the time it takes to hit your environment. You hope to drive that price up to the point where they're like, screw this, who else is easier that's out there? And at that point, you find somebody else to do that. Okay, that's that layered approach. So that's what it looks like from business side. From a individual side, just a consumer side, it's still as important to use that layered approach to security. And I've talked about this a lot on this show. It starts with freezing the credit of every single person in the house, including kids. Kids are the number one victims of identity theft. Credit freezes are free, are free. Problem is only 12% of the population have a credit freeze in place. So it starts there. Understand that criminals can, can get past that. Now, credit freeze stops all new account fraud. I can't pull your credit report without your permission. So how do I get past that? Well, because only 12% of the population has a credit freeze in place, typically I'm not going to worry about that too much. All right. If you do have a credit freeze in place, do I do I, at that point, do I try to fish you out? Maybe a spear phishing campaign to try to get your specific pins so I can unfreeze your credit myself. Well, that's going to cost me money. I have to, to spear fish you. I have to create a new domain. That's going to cost out-of-pocket expense. I'm going to have to pull your complete identity profile. That's going to be an out-of-pocket expense as well. It's going to take me time to research you, to fashion that spear phishing email to send out to you. And then I'm going to hope that you click on it, which it has about an 87% success rate. But it's going to take me time and money to do that. Time and money that could be well spent toward hitting a victim that doesn't have a credit freeze in place. So that layered approach, it starts with that, but understanding I can bypass it if I wanted to, okay? If I really was intent on victimizing you, I would want, I would do that. So then you go to the next layer, monitoring accounts and placing alerts on those accounts where you can. So you monitor every single account, your email, your bank, your credit card, your tax statements, your credit reports, you monitor accounts, you place alerts at credit cards, you monitor accounts, you place alerts, on those accounts where you can, just a different layer of security as well. So you place the alerts on the account. So if someone accesses that account, you get a text message saying, hey, someone's trying to victimize you. Now, how do you bypass that? Well, I can bypass it with a SIM swap, but that's gonna take time and money to do that again. So you bypass it with a SIM swap, depending on how multi-factor is instituted, or maybe I bypass it with um, a phishing link that captures the cookie so I can still, you know, come in and inject the cookie into my browser and take over your accounts like that, something like that. Again, it takes money. It raises the cost of that criminal investment to victimize you, okay? That layered approach to security, again, can be bypassed, but creates enough friction that hopefully it drives the criminal someplace else. Then what do you look at from there? Well, we use, we look at uh, passwords because 80% of the population uses the same passwords and logins across multiple websites. 
So what are you doing at that point? Well, password manager, maybe pass keys, maybe uh, password book, maybe. So you start looking at that. But again, that can be bypassed. So pass keys are brand new out there. How would I bypass the use of pass keys? Well, I would fashion maybe a phishing campaign, a man in the middle attack to capture the cookie for your login session again. That way it bypasses your use of pass keys all day long. I come into that environment, take over the account, do what I want to. But again, that increases the criminal investment. Okay, so that layered approach to security. Same thing with multi-factor authentication. I may even try to steal the cookie on that. Every single one of these layers can be bypassed, but it creates friction at every single one of these layers. Friction is there. And if you drive up the friction enough for the criminals, they will find a different target unless they're looking at attacking you specifically, which goes back into the motivation of the attack. Is it status? Is it cash? Is it ideology? Most attacks are cash-based attacks. If you're, if I'm looking to hit you, you, it's because you know you're you're the lowest hanging fruit. You're the easiest access. It gives me the largest return on that criminal access. So understand these things. This layered approach to security. You know the funny thing is, is it really is the same thing on the criminal side of things. They have a layered approach to security as well. You go to one of these darknet markets. What do you got? As you register, you have to have a PGP key. Well, that's a layered approach. Not only do you have to have one, but they've got one as well. So you go to visit that marketplace. You want to make sure that that marketplace is the legitimate marketplace that you're trying to visit. You can compare their PGP key to the published PGP key to make sure it's the right place, that you're going to the right place. All right. So you've got that. They require certain payment systems like it used to be Bitcoin. Now it's Monero. That helps to anonymize everything across the board. They've got vouching systems, review systems, escrow systems, all layered approaches to security, all which can be bypassed with enough effort. But that layered approach to security is exactly what matters. Okay. So that being said, what are you going to do? You know, are you going to, are you going to work toward being more secure? That understanding that, hey, Every single one of these things that I've talked about, they're very easy on for businesses, for individuals, for criminals to implement. But are you going to do that? Or are you just going to sit on your ass and be victimized at the end of the day? That's what we're talking about. That's the show for the day. My name is Brett Johnson. What do we say? We say stay safe, stay secure, stay vigilant. More importantly, this is the Brett Johnson Show. We end every single show by saying at the end of the day, just do the right damn thing. My name is Brett Johnson. I want to thank you guys for taking the time to listen and tune in. I want you to take the time to subscribe as well. Or not! Regardless, thank you for listening. Until next time.